This morning, we take a brief recess from our series in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking this morning at Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11, our auxiliary text will be Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40, but the main passage I'll be reading will be from verses 1 to 40. Now, the passage is very lengthy. So what I'll do when I get about verse 18, I'll make a sentence or two comment, and then we'll pick up at verse 28 to verse 40. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov, And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent, so Israel remained at Kadesh. So what we have in verses 18 through 27 is Jephthah continuing to rehearse God's dealings with Israel, legitimizing their presence in the land of Israel. And then verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. 
And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhoods of Minith, twenty cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companion. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. I don't think I'll be going too far in saying that Jephthah is among the less prominent figures in the Bible. If anything, he's perhaps more known for his rash vow to the Lord, a vow which, of course, he later came to regret Whereas his early beginnings were anything but desirable, he is remembered in scripture as a mighty warrior. We see that in verse 1. He is cited as an exemplar of faith in God in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 32 to 34, where along with such men as David and Samuel and the prophets, he is cited among these men who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So he has gone down in sacred history as a man of faith, as one of the heroes of faith. Jephthah, of course, lived during the period of the judges, and as we have said in the past, this was a period in the nation of Israel when the nation was at its lowest point spiritually. Twice in the book of Judges, we're told, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It was a time of moral and spiritual declension. It was a time during which Israel was oppressed by one foreign power after another. As chapter 10 shows, under the crushing weight of tyranny from the Ammonites, Israel cried out to the Lord, In repentance, they cried, begging the Lord for mercy. But as we see in verses 17 and 18, Israel faced a leadership crisis as far as ridding themselves of the Ammonites was concerned. And it was against this backdrop that Jephthah emerged as judge and leader in Israel. But who was this man, Jephthah? I want to submit to you, and it's very evident from the text, that from the very outset... Jephthah is presented as a man having a black mark against him. First of all, as far as his social status was concerned, he was stigmatized. Jephthah was stigmatized. He bore the stigma 
the social scourge of being the son of a woman of ill repute. As such, notice the reserve with which he is introduced in verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. It's like somebody saying today with a kind of reserve, they would give a full detail, a commendation of a person, but there is that knowing, uncomfortable exception. He, you know, he is a good man, but... You know, some years ago, he had a run-in with the law. It's something like that the narrator is putting across. He was a great warrior, but he had this little thing about him. He was the son of a prostitute. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, this woman was a Gentile. And in Jewish literature, she's identified as an Ishmaelite. So what this means was that not only was Jephthah's mother a prostitute, but she was a pagan which made the scourge Jephthah bore even more painful because his mother was not a part of Israel. And then secondly, his mother was a woman of shady repute. And to further understand something of the social and spiritual stigma that was attached to this man, Jephthah, we have to take into account Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, which stipulated... No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. So we see what Jephthah had going against him from the very beginning. He was, first of all, we are saying, stigmatized. But secondly, with a blood against him from the outset, not only was Jephthah stigmatized, he was ostracized. He was ostracized because we notice in verse 2, And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another Woman, it doesn't take much IQ to realize that his brothers had no love for him. They had no regard for him. They didn't care about him. All they were concerned about was their inheritance. Hence, they ejected him from the family. They thrust him out of their lives, so to speak. And to them, his own flesh and blood, Jephthah, was what we would call a persona non grata. He was unwanted. He was unwelcome. So he has two strikes against him. And then thirdly notice, with a blood against him from the start, not only was Jephthah stigmatized and ostracized, but we notice in verse 3 that he was marginalized. He was marginalized. Look at what the text says. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. They pushed him, we are saying, out on to the social margins. The term worthless fellows refers to those who today would be characterized. We hear of idlers, losers, hooligans, bad boys, hoodlums. That's the idea behind this word, worthless fellows. The NIV renders the term scoundrels. Other versions render the Hebrew word as outlaws or lawless men. And the point is this, listen, that having been rejected by his family, having been thrust out from the family, having been disinherited, Jephthah became hooked up with bad company. He took on, we'd say, the lifestyle of a gangster. And if you ask today, why it is that 
many a young person ends up joining gangs, living on the margins of society, and sadly ending up on the wrong side of the law. The answer in part is that oftentimes these young people are from homes that have been broken, dislocated homes that have never experienced love, homes where they were rejected and ill-treated, just as Jephthah had been, homes where parents were careless and gave no serious effort to the whole matter of parenting. So what happens is this, they get into gangs that offer them a sense of belonging, acceptance, affirmation, protection, and some sense of community and structure. And it's frightening to know, my friends, that many young people, even from affluent homes, homes where, for all intents and purposes, looking on, we would say, boy, that's a fine family. Many of these youngsters coming from affluent homes, comfortable homes, homes that are apparently happy, end up in gangs. While gangs offer a sense of acceptance, gangs, as one article states, quotes, are also dangerous and destructive. They can expose their members to violence, crime, drugs, exploitation, and abuse. They can also reinforce their negative appraisal style and make them more resistant to positive influences and opportunities, says this article. The question is, were Jephthah and his worthless followers engaged in untoward activities? I've never been a part of a gang. I've never been a part of what text describes here as worthless fellows. But my suspicion is that these young men took to following Jephthah, not that they might be led in Bible study and prayer. I hardly think that these quote-unquote, and these are not my words, these are the words of the text, these worthless fellows, these hoodlums, as the contemporary expression would put it, these young men were following Jephthah for spiritual inspiration. That doesn't sound like what gangs do. Displaced from society just as Jephthah had been, what do gangs typically do? The question is, how do they survive? Well, by taking things that are not theirs, let's say. And with this in mind, it seems that as a gang leader, Jephthah, along with his cronies, made a living by raiding and plundering. In fact, regarding Jephthah, one commentator makes a suggestion, and it's a reasonable one, I believe. He says this, quote, He led the life of a criminal, though he and his gang of raiders may have harassed the Ammonites more than the Israelites. Now, verses 4 through 11 record how Jephthah became a judge and military leader of Israel. We read in verses 4 through 6, After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. What was happening here was this. You see, in those days, in the days of the judges, there was no centralized leadership. There was no king to rally forces in battle against the enemy. At this time, Israel was totally helpless and defenseless. At this time, their situation was one of desperation. You have heard the saying, and how true is the saying, a drowning man will clutch at a straw. 
And figuratively speaking, this was certainly true of the elders of Gilead because here's the point. Of all persons they turned to for help, they had to go all the way to the outer parts of town. They had to go all the way to the land of Tob to fetch this man who had been ostracized, who had been pushed to the margins, who had been rejected from his family, who had been rejected from society. They had to go all the way to the land of Tob to fetch Jephthah. One they had previously despised. One who had become a reject of society, one who had become a renegade, one for who, for all intents and purposes, was a nobody, what we would call a pariah. That's who they went to look for. You know, it has been well said, never burn your bridges behind you. And the fact is, the one you reject and write off today could very well be that same person whose help is needed tomorrow. That's the situation we find happening here in our text. And the question is, what was it that may have led the elders of Gilead to approach Jephthah for help in battle against the Ammonites? What was it that drove them? In their state of desperation, what was it that drove them to go all the way to the land of Tob to fetch Jephthah to come and be their leader to fight against the Ammonites? Well, here's what I think, and this is a suggestion. Perhaps the reason that if he could amass the kind of following he had from his cronies, then he could use the leadership and warrior skills he had learned from the streets to fight and defeat the Ammonites. Indeed, as suggested by verse 1, if you look at verse 1, by this time, Jephthah was reputedly a great warrior. Remember, he had been absent from town perhaps for years he had been living out in this region with his cronies, these worthless fellows who gathered around him. They followed him wherever they went. I asked the question, how were they surviving? Of course, no doubt, by raiding, by plundering. No doubt, I believe, the Ammonites. And hearing of Jephthah's reputation, the elders said, listen, this man could be the man who would really deliver us from the hand of the Ammonites. Now, in verse 7, we see Jephthah's response to their request. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come now when you're in distress? Translation. Jephthah is saying something like this. Man, life is so funny, isn't it? Look at how you treated me. Look at how you ran me out of the family. Look how you ran me out of the society, mainstream society. And now that you are in distress, now that you're in big trouble, all of a sudden I'm important. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Translation, we have come to you, we can't help it because we're in deep trouble and we need help. Verse 9, Jephthah, in return, he said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Translation, pay my fare, bring me back into Mizpah, where you had driven me from. But here's the point, here's the catch. If ever... I win the battle, I'm going to have to become your leader. It's going to be on my terms. That's, if, that's essentially what Jephthah was saying to the elders of Gilead. 
So having agreed on these terms, what they did then, they went to Mizpah where they ratified Jephthah's leadership before the Lord. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And the first order of business for Jephthah as judge of Israel, by now he had been installed as judge of Israel, the first line of business, order of business for Jephthah, as seen in verses 12 through 27 was this. He sent a delegation to the king of the Ammonites inquiring. Notice verse 12. What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? That was a man with good leadership skills, wasn't he? He sends a delegation with a simple question. What do you have against me that you have come to fight against my land? In reply, the king of the Ammonites claimed that Israel stole their land on coming from Egypt and that they should return it in peace. So what Jephthah does, he sends messengers to them once again. And Jephthah, in verses 15 through 27, laid out a detailed defense of Israel's right to the land of Canaan. The land now then known as the land of Israel. And in essence, he told the king of the Ammonites, that Israel's possession of the land actually came as a gift from God. They weren't there as squatters. God gave them the land. And God gave them the land, Jephthah insists, God gave them the land because in judgment against the Amorites, when, because they would not allow Israel to pass through their land, Israel had no intention of taking their land because they refused Israel's entry to the land. They were inhospitable. God caused Israel to conquer them and so dispossess them of the land. And with this, Joshua was saying to the Ammonite king that the land in dispute actually belonged to the Amorites and not to the Ammonites. That's essentially what he was saying to them. He says, after all, the land isn't yours. And then with somewhat of a jab at the Ammonite king, a sarcastic punch, if we would put it like that, a, a sarcastic jab at the Ammonite king, Jephthah, in maintaining that the land was a gift from God, suggests to him in verse 24, here's what he said to the king, Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. What was Jephthah saying in effect? Jephthah was saying in a sarcastic manner to the king of the Ammonites, well, your God hasn't done much for you, has, has he? That's really what he was saying. He, he was saying, look, our God has given us this. Here's our argument. He fought our battles. He enabled us to conquer all of these territories. What has Chemosh done for you? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And then look at what he does in verse 25. Look at what he did. He warned the king. What he says there in verse 25. He says, now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? You remember the whole account in Numbers 25, how the king got this false prophet to curse Israel. And of course, we know what became of that. He could not curse those whom God did not curse. And so what Jephthah says to the king of the Ammonites he warns him by way of history that no one has ever fought against Israel and prevailed. That's essentially what he was saying to him. In verse 26, he argues that for all of three centuries, all of 300 years, while Israel lived in that region that they were now occupying, 
The Amorites had time enough to claim it, but they didn't. 300 years. And then he poses the question to the king. Why didn't you take them back at that time? He says, here's Israel in the land for all of 300 years. The Amorites, whom Israel got the land from, they fought against the Amorites, which land, of course, isn't yours, and Israel won. How is it now that you are coming and claiming the land, which, after all, isn't yours? Jephthah then closed by assuring the king of the Ammonites that he had not sinned against him. He had done him no wrong. And that he was leaving the matter in the Lord's hands. Notice what he says there in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Here's what he was saying. I'm leaving the matter in the hands of the Lord. Of course, the king would not listen to Jephthah. What then was Jephthah's recourse? Time for war. We see in verse 29, with the spirit of the Lord coming upon him, it was time for war with the Ammonites after what appears to have been Jephthah going around doing a sort of reconnaissance mission. He takes this vow to the Lord, telling the Lord that if ever he wins this battle, he's going to offer as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of his house when he returns. That was clearly a rash and senseless vow. Listen, it was a vow he did not have to make. He did not have to make the vow. Why? Because if you look at verse 29, Jephthah was equipped and energized by the Spirit of God for battle. Verse 29 says this, that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And this implies, my friend, that Jephthah therefore had some kind of inkling. He had some kind of indication from the Lord that he would surely defeat the Ammonites. But what happened? And this apparently was what happened. Jephthah, human as he was, he's passing through the region and he sees the Ammonites and all of a sudden he's overwhelmed by what he saw and he feels that somehow he has to bolster his confidence. He has to go to the Lord with a special appeal and try to appease God by saying, Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. Which really was an evidence of not too strong faith, right? He was not confident enough in the empowerment of the Spirit of God to see him through this battle. Question is, in fact, before we get to that question, after he made the vow, who would imagine this? Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Meneve, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. What do you know? Here is it. Verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child besides her. He had neither son nor daughter. You can imagine Jephthah. Jephthah is alarmed. Jephthah is shocked at this moment. And we know the kind of response people give when something happens that's undesirable. They say, oh no. And he, you can imagine Jephthah is all surprised and all worried at this point. What have I done? What was the vow he had taken? He says, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will offer it as a burnt sacrifice. The question is, what happened to Jephthah's daughter? And very often the question is really pressed, did Jephthah literally offered her 
as a burnt offering. Well, what do you think? And I'm going to say this from the very outset. Your guess is as good as mine. But I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what I think. I depart from the traditional interpretation, the popular interpretation that says that she was consigned to a life of perpetual, eternal virginity. And the reason I'm going against that, I know good men argue that, and they seem to argue it well, but it's not convincing. And I'll tell you why. First of all, the Hebrew word that's used for burnt offering is never used anywhere in a figurative sense. It's never used in the Old Testament in a figurative sense. It always has reference to literal slaughter and burning of a sacrifice. Always. Which means, for a moment, we have to consider the possibility that he actually slew her as a sacrifice. Now, wait a minute. Somebody says, God condemned human sacrifice. God condemned it in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, I have two references here. Uh, Deuteronomy 12.31, Deuteronomy 18.10, God strictly prohibited the offering of what we call child sacrifice. But let me suggest this. What I think we must do when we are reading, particularly the book of Judges, is not to attempt to sanitize the various characters, the various heroes. Remember Samson. If we notice in the book of Judges, God uses, in the book of Judges, seriously flawed people. I mean, seriously flawed people to get his work done. Of all people he used, as we saw some time ago, was who? Samson. What was the kind of person Samson was? For the most part, we see him going on these immoral escapades. He was, for all intents and purposes, a playboy. God used him. Now, mark you, God never sanctions the sins of the individual. God never sanctions the sins of the individual. In fact, God judges for sin. But here's the point I'm making. God, nevertheless, used Samson. When you're reading the Bible, as, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, Michael reminded us the analogy of Scripture and also the context, context, context. What is the context of the book of Joshua? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was a time, my friends, when morally and spiritually speaking, all kinds of crazy, outrageous things were happening in Israel among the people of God. Crazy things. Read, for example, 1 Kings 18. Here is a man of God, a Levite, who does the unthinkable. He takes a Levite, he takes a concubine, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing with you, but you read chapter 18, and what you find, you find something there morally outrageous. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, what does this man of God do? What is he found doing? He's dismembering, literally dismembering his concubine. Horrible. And as I said, read of Samson, who was a morally wayward person, and here's the point that I'm making now. The point is this, that whereas Jephthah, was divinely empowered just as Samson was. And Samson was a flawed man. I'm making the point that Jephthah as a flawed man did not entirely break off some of the heathen practices that Israel was practicing at this time. And coming from his shady background, he evidently was spiritually immature. From his rash blanket vow, it appears that he did not make his daughter an exception in the vow. Why? Because child sacrifice was prevailing practices 
of Israel's neighbor. And here's the point. Israel at this time was engaged in syncretism. Israel at this time was engaged in heathen practices. So it is not far-fetched to think that here it comes. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes, it appeared to Jephthah that he was doing the right thing in carrying through the vow he had made to the Lord. Now listen, don't leave today with that as dogma. That's just one side, one interpretation. Once again, what really happened, I don't think we can state dogmatically, but it seems to me if we do a close reading of the book, that interpretation is not far-fetched. He sacrificed his daughter. He was still like the rest of his people. He was a child of his day. He was a child of his times. And so what happened? Amidst his faith in God, with his faith in God, there was also what? Syncretism. Practices of surrounding nations. Well, let's consider, as we draw to a close this morning, let's talk about his positive traits. His positive traits. And the first thing we'll bring to you this morning is this, that Jephthah's life serves as a challenge to those that would be described today as having a victim mentality. His life lends a rebuke to those who today seem to thrive on grievance, those who love to wallow and pride themselves in their sense of victimhood. Let me say this, if there was one man if there was one man who could argue the case that he was a victim of circumstances and more so a victim of the cruelty of others, it was who? Jephthah. 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 Remember, from the moment he stepped into this world, the deck was stacked against him. He was stigmatized from birth. He was ostracized by his brethren. He was pushed to the fringes of society. This man could have been bitter. And notice, secondly, notice, when the people came, when the men of Gilead came to ask him for help, notice another thing about Jephthah. It is this, that though he had been shabbily treated by way of rejection, by way of social dislocation, by his family and by society, Jephthah was not bitter and vengeful. Do you notice that? He was not bitter and vengeful. Yes, he came around to telling them, listen, if I help you, it's going to be on my turn. But here's the point. He put forward himself in the service of his country and in the service of the Lord. Instead, he agreed to be their leader to fight with them against the Ammonites, even in the absence of an apology. Notice, they did not even lend an apology to him. They said, we, the reason we're coming to you because we need your help. We are in distress. No apology. But he went ahead. Thirdly, by all accounts, Jephthah was an outstanding leader. An outstanding leader. As a leader, notice, he was a man of diplomacy. He was a man of reason. He was a man of good sense. Notice the first thing he did. He was not quick to make war against the Ammonites, even though he could have legitimately done so. The first thing he did, he dialogued with them. He sent a delegation. He sought to make peace with the Ammonites. Fourthly, here's the fourth good thing about Jephthah. Jephthah was a man of his word. Though he unwisely made a rash vow to the Lord, the admirable thing about Jephthah was that he fulfilled the vow he had made to the Lord, to his credit, he showed himself a man who was not given to empty hollow promises. And this really shows something of the character of Jephthah. He was a man, we would say, of courage, moral courage. How many today make vows? Flippant vows. You say, what are you talking about? They go before the marriage altar. 
They say for better or for worse, till death do us part. And at the first sign of inconvenience, they run. The Bible tells us that taking vows before the Lord is a serious matter. It's a serious matter. God takes seriously the vow. And that is why we come over to the New Testament and Jesus makes it clear. He says, let your yes be yes, your no, no. He says, swear not. We are to be people of truth, people of our word. Jephthah was a man who stood to his word, who honored his vows. In fact, Psalm 15 says of the one who dwelt in the Lord's presence, verse 4, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. And then fifthly, much could be said of his daughter being a godly young woman, obedient to him, submissive to the Lord. You know this, what happened? She came to him, she said, listen, do what God tells you to do. She was obedient. She says, the Lord has given you victory. You need to carry out what you promised to the Lord. And this points to the fact that as a parent, Jephthah had brought up his daughter in the ways of the Lord. His only daughter, his only child. He brought her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Perhaps the most outstanding feat, and I would say no doubt the most outstanding feat of Jephthah, is that he's recognized in Scripture as one of the many heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 33 asks, How was his faith manifested? Well, go to that section where he rehearses God's dealings with Israel, and you see how much he was steeped in the word of God, how much he knew of redemptive history from the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it is clear he believed every word that was found there concerning God's dealings with Israel, how that God gave Israel the land, and that God would give Israel the victory over the Ammonites. That he exercised faith in God with respect to the battle against the Ammonites is suggested in verses 9 and 30. If you make a note of these verses, because these verses we see he implicitly acknowledged that any victory he would obtain would have to be of the Lord's doing. In verse 27, he expressed the conviction that as judge, the Lord would arbitrate in the dispute between him and the Ammonites. That was a mark of faith. What are the lessons we can take away this morning? I believe, my friends, the first is this, that God has a way of taking flawed, broken people, messed up people, transforming them into testimonies and trophies of his marvelous power and grace. God specializes in that, if we could put it that way. In other words, it is one of the wonders of God's mode of operation to use the most insignificant, the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian Christians? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God uses broken lives. He uses broken, flawed people, making them testimonies and trophies of his marvelous grace. And then secondly, we learn from this passage that Jephthah serves as an encouragement to those who have been rejected and treated as non-entities. 
From his life story, we're reminded that the God we serve is a God of grace and compassion. The God, in the words of Psalm 113, verse 7, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And then here's a third and final lesson we can take away this morning. It's a very sobering one. The lesson is this, that if not properly harnessed and tempered with sober thinking, religious zeal can be most dangerous. And destructive. Jephthah was clearly a man of zeal. He was out to win this battle. He was out to gain the victory. But he was rash in the intensity of the moment. He made this rash vow to the Lord, which of course he paid for somehow. If not properly harnessed and tempered with sober thinking, religious zeal can be most dangerous and even destructive. It's good to have zeal, but unless that zeal is based on knowledge and self-control, then we get into a lot of trouble. It turns us into fanatics. Zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. And we don't want to be people who are fanatics. We want to be people of sober thinking, righteous thinking, godly thinking. What tremendous lessons we learned this morning. Lessons of God's grace, lessons of God's power. Lessons concerning the value of faith in him. God can accomplish mighty things. He can use any who is submitted to him.